Hello and welcome to Kerrang! Back Issues. I'm your host Stephen and this week we'll be delving into issue number 559, August the 19th, 1995, pence. The cover stars for this week's issue are White Zombie. White Zombie, America's hottest band, gets set for Reading and Donington. Also, in this week's uh, episode, <laughs> I almost said issue, episode, Skunk Nancy new LP exclusive, Money Off, Moist, Urge Overkill and Filter LPs, Wild Hearts, Secret Gigs Exposed, Silver Chair, Teen Spirit Grunge Sensations, Rancid, They Eat Offspring for Breakfast, 12 Days on the Road with Bon Jovi, 4 Posters, Soundgarden, Blind Melon, Sepultura, Green Day, Plus Whale, Skid Row, Skin, Chili Peppers, Thunder and Machine Head. Absolutely tons to get through in this week's issue. So uh, let's crack on with it. If you'd like to get in contact with us here at Karangback Issues, we can be contacted via Instagram, Karangback Issues, Twitter, Karangbod and email Issues at gmail.com. Let's begin where we always do with a swift word from the editor. Do not adjust your set. For the next 64 pages, we will control the horizontal. We will control the vertical. Quite what will come out at the end of it, all God alone knows. But it may well hurt. Yes, this week's issue is being beamed down from the planet Zombie. A planet where zip guns, boogie and cartoons make real life. Yes, in honour of this week's cover star's white zombie, we've suspended our disbelief and moved to a parallel universe. The kind of universe where the roadworks around Camden, Piccadilly and Regent Street are figments of other people's imaginations. It's a universe where there are choirs of Russian monks chanting their way through what sounds like a new track by Brit Metal Champions Iron Maiden. Uh, hold on a minute. Rewind that tape. Lummy. Just when we thought it was all a dream, or at least a way of writing a swift introduction to this week's issue, it turns out to be true. Crumbs. There are a load of rusky monks warbling on the new Iron Maiden album, and there are roadworks in Camden, Piccadilly and Regent Street, and we still can't find somebody to make the tea this week. Thankfully, Kerrang! is one of the few constants in this world of virtual reality and unreal lunacy. Till next week, rely on it. Phil Alexander, editor. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Let's begin this week's issue with Mayhem, the loudest news first. Skunk and Nancy will release their debut album Paranoid and Sunburnt through One Little Indian on September the 18th. It will be preceded by a single charity on August 21st. The album, which was mixed by Andy Wallace, is a hugely exciting and provocative set and every track has something to say. Recently, at the Deptford Urban Free Festival, Skin wore a t-shirt emblazoned with the phrase, Condon is a cunt. It was directed at London's Chief of Police, Paul Condon, who's claimed that most muggings in the nation's capital were carried out by black youths. I had to write the words cryptically so I didn't get arrested, laughed Skin. But this Condon statement, where he blames the black community for muggings, is typical of how blatantly racist the police are. I've got three brothers, and from a very early age they were always getting hauled in for this or that. For me, that statement just summed up the way the police have always looked at young black people as troublemakers. The guy really is a cunt, she spits. And to be honest, I think that's the only way you can speak about him. He obviously has no respect for black society, so why should we deal with him in a respectful manner? If someone's going to treat me like a cunt, then they're a cunt. 
Stop press and tickets for the Donington 95 special bus service that will run between the Reading Festival and Donington on Saturday, August 26th can be bought by calling 0115-934-2031 and not the number announced last week. Def Leppard's greatest hits album will be called Vault. It will be released through Mercury on October 16th. Sweetwater will have their Super Friends album, which was awarded 4Ks in last week's Kerrang! released in the UK in September-October. Super Suckers will release a new single Marie on September the 4th. The band who will release their third album, Sacrilicious, in the autumn will tour the UK in October. And Black Sabbath have parted company with drummer Cozy Powell and replaced him with his immediate predecessor in the band, Bobby Rondinelli. Holes Courtney Love has entered into a war of words with San Franciscan sludge rockers the Melvins on the internet. The feud started when head Melvin King Buzzo alleged in a US magazine interview that Love's late husband Kurt Cobain was the brains behind the songs on Holes' last album The Million Selling Live Through This. Courtney responded on the internet, claiming that Buzzo was merely jealous that Kurt, a former Melvin's roadie, became more successful than his band with Nirvana. Elsewhere, Hull's debut album Pretty on the Inside will be re-released in the UK by City Slang on August 28th. It was recorded by the original Hull lineup Love, Eric Erlandson, Jill Emery, Caroline Rue and features a following track listing Teenage Whore, Baby Doll, Garbage Man, Sassy, Good Sister, Bad Sister, Mr Jones, Berry Loaded, Star Belly, Pretty on the Inside, Clouds. Hull are currently competing the Lollapalooza track in the US. They appear on the main stage at the Reading Festival on Friday, August the 25th. Red Hot Chili Peppers finally returned to action with the release of a new single, Warped, on August 21st. Produced by Rick Rubin, Warped is taken from the band's eagerly awaited new album, One Hot Minute, which will be issued on September 11. Warped, a typically explosive blast of Chili's funk, is backed by another album track, P, and the previously unreleased Melancholy Mechanics. One Hot Minute will also include the following tracks, Deep Kick, which apparently catches a rolling wave of guitars and frothy harmonies, Aeroplane, Falling Into Grace, Walkabout, River uh, my, and My Friends, a downbeat acoustic tune which is scheduled to be the next single. The Fossum, uh, who are completed by vocalists Anthony Kiedis, Dave Navarro and drummer Chad Smith, will also play the following three UK dates in October. Brixton Academy, October 3rd and 4th and Manchester Apollo on the 6th. The Wild Hearts played two secret UK gigs as a three-piece last week. Ginger, Danny and Rich, who were billed as the Mood Swingers, played Hanley the Stage on August the 8th and Dudley JB's on August the 9th. The trio performed a 15-minute set on both nights. According to a fan who attended the Hanley gig, we couldn't believe it when the Wild Hearts walked on stage. It was supposed to be local band night. There were about 100 people there. A lot of people stayed outside because they refused to believe it was them, but they were fucking ace. They're much better as a three-piece. Indeed, it's believed that the band may now be contemplating shelving their search for a new guitarist and continuing as a trio, with Rich taking care of the vocal harmonies. It seems to make sense that way, says a spokesman for the band, but right now, they're just really excited to be playing live again. ACDC will return to action in September with the release of a new album and single. The album, which Mayhem can exclusively reveal will be titled Ball Breaker, is set to emerge on September 25th. The single Hard As A Rock is due to precede it on September the 18th. Produced by Rick Rubin in New York and Los Angeles, Ball Breaker is said to be the best album ACDC have recorded in years, with a raw bluesy sound that harks back to vintage 70s records like Power Ridge and Dirty D Dunder Cheap. 
The band are yet to confirm any touring plans, but it's likely that they'll kick off in the US before hitting the UK early next year. Stay tuned for a full blow-by-blow -blow account of Ballbreaker. The Sex Pistols will be featured on a TV documentary, Arena, Punk and the Pistols, which will be screened on BBC2 at 9.35pm on Sunday, August the 20th. The 90-minute programme, which marks the 20th anniversary of the punk explosion, includes interviews with and vintage performance footage of the Pistols, the Ramones, the New York Dolls and a host of other pogotastic luminaries. Among the more notable moments are the Pistols frontman Johnny Rotten proclaiming that the band were famous when they ceased to exist. And Radio 1's John Peel reflecting, When I first saw punk girls, I thought they should be taken into care for their own protection. Punk and the Pistols chart the genesis of punk in the US and follows it through to its birth and death in the UK. Beginning at sex, the London shop infamous Pistols manager Malcolm McLaren ran with fashion maverick Vivian Westwood. Westwood, in fact, sums the whole thing up. Punk rock is the best exercise in rock and roll rebellion there's ever been. Shelter, the hotly tipped New York hardcore outfit, will tour the UK in September. The Krishna-loving melodic crunchers play the following dates. Camden Underworld, September 15th. Leicester Princess Charlotte, 16th. Bristol Loco, 17th. Birmingham Foundry, 18th. Nottingham Clinton Rooms, 19th. Leeds Duchess of York, 20th. Middlesbrough Town Hall, Crypt, 21. Glasgow King Tut, 22. Edinburgh Venue, 23. Howard Delphi, 24. Cambridge Boat Race, 25. Portsmouth Wedgwood Rooms, 26. Bedford Esquires, 27. Milton Keynes Sanctuary, 28. And Rugley Red Rose Theatre, 29th. Jesus, I didn't realise there were that many dates. When I started to read this, that is a full UK tour and then some. Rising UK hardcore mob Understand will support on all dates, with the exception of Bristol, Birmingham, Nottingham, Leeds and Rudgley. In addition, the gigs in Birmingham, Nottingham, Leeds, Edinburgh, Cambridge, Portsmouth, Bedford, Milton Keynes and Rudgley are all age shows. Shelter will release their new album The Monstrous Mantra through Super Soul Roadrunner on October the 16th. Record News between Heaven and Hell is the title of a new 16-track compilation from Black Sabbath, being issued through Castle on September the 18th. The full track listing is Hole in the Sky, Into the Void, Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath, Nativity in Black, Paranoid, War Pigs, Iron Man, Wicked World, Supernaut Changes, Backstreet Kids, Never Say Die, Neon Knights, Mob Rules, Zero the Hero and Black Sabbath. Dearly Beheaded, the hotly tipped Stockport Thrashers will finally release their debut EP In a Darkened Room through Music for Nations on September the 18th. This four-track record was produced by Simon Ephemy and was originally stated for release on East West. The Goops, the American hardcore act, will release their self-titled debut album through Engine Blackout Records during October. Nailbomb, the Max Cavalera Alex Newport side project, will issue a live album titled Proud to Commit Commercial Suicide through Roadrunner in October. Recorded at the Dynamo Festival during early June, this will include the band's full set that day plus a cover of the Dead Kennedys police truck, as well as new studio cuts Zero Tolerance and While You Sleep, I Destroy Your World. Sheer Terror, the New York hardcore act issue an album titled Love Songs for the Unloved through Engine Blackout Records on August 29th. And Super Suckers, the Seattle-based Fearsome Foursome issue a new single titled Marie through Sub Pop on September the 4th. This is taken from new album Sacrilicious. The band will tour the UK during October to coincide with the release of the new album. Tour news and Ash, the Irish rockers who hit the top 20 with new single Girl From Mars, play a date at London LA2 August the 18th with Cable, Leeds Duchess of York 19th and Glasgow King Tut's Wawa Hut on the 20th. 
Cable, the Derby Alternative Crunchers play London LA2 August the 18th, supporting Ash. Reading Festival Weird Stage 25th, Portsmouth Big Top 26th with the Buzzcocks. They will then support Dunline down at Edinburgh Evol September the 2nd, Newcastle Riverside 4th, Birmingham Flapper and Firkin 7th, Tunbridge Wells Forum 8th and London Hybrid Garage 9th. The band issued their first single for the Infectious label on September the 4th, it's titled Blind Man. The two support acts for NoFX to US punk shows at Wolverhampton Wolfram Hall on August the 20th have now been confirmed. They are Total Chaos and Skimmer. Poor the Kansas Mob play London Camden Palace Feet First August 22nd, London King's Cross Splash Club 23rd and Reading Festival on the 27th. And finally, um, Whale, the Swedish sextet play London's King's College on August 24th prior to appearing at the Reading Festival the next day. Mayhem America, the hottest US news as it happens, starting this week with Don K in New York. Type and Negative have at last finished their near two year tour and can look back on it with satisfaction. Their album Bloody Kisses is steadily approaching the gold sales mark, 500,000 copies in the US. The band are now back home in Brooklyn where they're already busy writing songs for their next record. Ominous rumblings from the Caius camp. Sources say the band have been the subject of complaints at various stops on their US tour. Allegedly, the foursome haven't been showing up for meet and greets with fans and local promoters, and when they do, they've reportedly been rude and uncommunicative. Long missing Southern Boogie Greats Raging Slab was spotted the other Friday night playing a gig down in Greenwich Village. The band have been holed away in their Pennsylvanian farm for ages, working on a new LP, but sources say that their label, American, rejected the Slab's initial offering. It's rumoured that the label have now put the slab into a real studio for a second stab at their follow-up to Dynamite Monster Boogie. As predicted in this column a few weeks back, Maryland Grunge Lunatics Clutch have been dropped by East West. However, the word is that they're being picked up by Atlantic, oddly a part of the Warner Music Group like East West, with a $300,000 advance to ease them in. A posting on the internet claims that once its Hershut leader is finished with his current project, a very well-known US record label will close its doors. Two high-level executives have already left the company. If the shutdown does occur, the label's roster will apparently be dealt out to various other companies. Watch this space. US News Extra. Green Day, Weezer, Ash, Goo Goo Dolls and The Muffs have all contributed tracks to soundtrack album to the movie Angus, which will be released in the US on September the 15th. Pearl Jam have rescheduled four of the dates they recently cancelled in the US for September. Legendary maverick Patti Smith dedicated a new song about a boy to Kurt Cobain when she played the second stage of the Lollapalooza Festival in New York on July 28th. We now join Lisa Johnson in LA. The Walk Tour started last week in Salt Lake City, Utah, home of the 1996 Winter Olympics. Headlining at L7 and Quicksand with the likes of Orange 9mm, Civ, Fluff, no use for a name, Vandals, Lagwagon, No Doubt and Sublime also on the bill. The tour is an all-day event that's half concert, half skateboarding expo, featuring pro boarders showing their tricks, as well as snowboarding gear, mountain bikes, a climbing wall and BMX racers. There's also something called a monster half pipe. Sounds like fun. 
Rump for Choice is releasing two compilations this year on Columbia. The first out now in the US is called Spirit of 73, in reference to the landmark decision of Roe vs Wade in giving women the legal right to an abortion. L7's Jennifer Finch is one of the founding members of Rock for Choice and the group contributed a version of the Runaways Cherry Bomb, recorded live with Joan Jett, among the other 14 cuts is Babes in Toyland's version of More 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 with drummer Laurie Barbero singing. The second Rock for Choice release is a collection of Christmas numbers with contributions from Sponge, Mike Watt, Shudder to Think, Presidents of the United States of America, Henry Rollins' version of Little Drummer Boy, Bad Religion's punk rock Silent Night medley that hits on every classic holiday number, including My Sharona, and a new track from Wall, Your Ex, which includes strings and a children's choir. Red Hot Chili Peppers, Smashing Pumpkins, and Blind Melon may also contribute. Beavis, <laughs> you've never been to a concert in your life. Shut up! We now come to concerts. Smelly, 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 smoky concerts. God, it was great, wasn't it? You used to go to a gig, come home, and you had to wash all of your clothes immediately because they all absolutely stank of smoke. Even if you hadn't been moshing and you hadn't got sweaty or anything like that, or everything you owned stank. Great times. First uh, concert reviewed this week is Tea in the Park Festival at Strathclyde County Park, Hamilton, Scotland on Saturday. Well, it's August the 5th, but Karanga have written Augsat the 5th. <laughs> that's, a, that's a terrible spelling mistake. Come on, Karang. Jesus. This is reviewed by Morat, and this gets electrocution out of five. I don't know about tea in the park. It's more like fucking E in the park, roars Ricky Warwick as the Almighty hit the stage. Indeed, everyone here seems to be totally off their face on something. But the title of Skunkanetsi's forthcoming debut album, Paranoid and Sunburnt, is equally appropriate. The endless sunshine means there's some seriously overcooked bodies here by the end of the day. Skunk, celebrating vocalist Skin's birthday, opened the festival with all the usual panache, raising a cloud of dust from the pit that is quite an accurate gauge of how well a band is playing. Naturally, the Almighty's Cloud reflects a furious set, kicking off with Jonestown Mind. Like their last tour, the focus of attention is on material from Crank. So maybe older fans were a little disappointed, but I'd rather hear the thunderous move right in than free and easy any day. New song, All Sussed Out, indicates much to look forward to, so long as the band learn not to miss a beat in surprise when the whole audience sings along to Wrench, standing in for the Wild Hearts, the almighty get all fucking mightier. With all that sunshine and beer, I forgot that Island's Ash were playing in the tent, and only caught the last few numbers, but frankly, indie rock has never been my cup of buckfast. That said, I've always disliked Terrorvision, even back when they were supporting Zodiac Mind Warp, but there's no denying they put on a good show today. True, it's vacuous pop rock, nothing more than something to jig about to, but it's surprising how many tunes you recognise even if you're not a fan. Pretend Best Friend, American TV, Disco Tech Wreck, damn, I know far more of these songs than I should and even tap my feet to a couple. But hey, we're trying to be positive about the band, so I only watched half of that hour long set, by their own standards, Terrorvision undoubtedly played well and that dust cloud definitely got bigger. Therapy put things into context with a stunning, diverse and it must be said more relevant set that ranges from pop rock to jagged punk and even stretches into classical territory. All the bands played well today, but this is easily the best I have ever seen from Therapy. True, it's mostly just Michael bopping about, Andy looking more and more like Elvis and Fife pounding away at the back but somehow there is a fresh intensity that is almost frightening at times. 
Therapy plays Scream Major and Trigon inside like they've never played them and like they'll never get to play them again. Like the whole world depends on it. They finish with a rendition of Diane that makes the hairs on the back of your neck stand on end. Just Andy singing his soul out accompanied by a cello. They then leave a spellbound audience with 30 seconds and a simple message of peace. The Prodigy are the perfect band to follow and headline such a show. Maybe you don't think they're a Kerrang band, but tell that to the Almighty and Skunk Nancy, who are all dotted around the crowd dancing their asses off. The Prodigy cover all bases, reggae, hip-hop and crunching metal riffs that even Metallica would be proud of, all with that manic techno energy that sets the whole field alight. Visually, they're incredible, totally in your face and pulling off on-stage moves that you would think physically impossible. And weird as it may seem, they are the heaviest band of the day. Down the road in Glasgow, there were half a dozen murders over the weekend. Here tonight, it's just one giant happy tribe. The next review is for Fela95. This took place at, excuse my terrible Gaelic, Peck Ot Shamomik in Cork. <laughs> Sorry. Fela95 in Peck Ut Shamomim Cork on Friday, August the 4th to Sunday, August the 6th. Reviewed by Paul Brannigan, this one gets a static out of 5, which is a 3 out of 5. Apologies to any Irish listeners out there. What can I say? I am just an ignorant Englishman. The Fela is a splendid annual excuse for Ireland's youth to lie in the sun, indulge in serious substance abuse and listen to loads of great music. Although this year's bill is heavily weighted towards dance and indie music, there are quality rock tidbits to savour. Unfortunately for Joyrider, most ticket holders are still nursing serious hangovers in the campsite when they open proceedings on Saturday. Early risers are rewarded with Phil Woolsey and the boys cranking out short, sharp shockers. Happy now and the cheekily frantic it moved, an admirable performance under the circumstances. With their recent support on Therapy's British tour, Stum are finally picking up long overdue plaudits. A searing jumble of staccato guitars, off-kilter rhythms and bruised emotions. The Derry Quartet get better and better. Ash, with new single Girl From Mars perched on the brink of the top 10, are about to go supernova. It's easy to see why. The fiery live performance and youthful good looks help, but it's vocalist guitarist Tim Wheeler's casual ability to toss out genius pop-punk tunes which elevates Ash above their peers. Exactly how Reef have managed to become the latest Brit rock sensations isn't clear. Yes, good feeling is slinky and groovy in all the right places and naked as this big addictive chorus, but the Glastonbury Quartet most certainly do not blow us away. If you're going to rip off 70s rock, be Caius, be the Black Crows, or be off with you. Some uh, day Reef may be great, but for now they'll have to make do with hit singles, magazine front covers, and sell out tours. Who said life isn't fair? Next up we have The Mood Swingers, live at Hanley The Stage on Monday, August the 7th. Reviewed by Will D at Heart. This one gets a electrocution out of 5, which is 5 out of 5. Fuck me, it's the Wild Hearts. On a quiet night in a quiet venue, the piece is shattered by free, yes free, noisy, screwed up punks turning up the volume and playing sweet rock and roll. Watching the Wild Hearts for, yes, it is them playing the most secret gig ever, is a thrilling live experience. All you sad imitation rock bands out there who think the ultimate live experience is achieved using fancy lights and extravagant stage sets are wasting your time. Watch the Wild Hearts and understand one thing, all you just need is to play loud and mean it. So why this secret gig? With just three of them in the band now since the messy sacking of guitarist Mark Keds, it seems a logical thing to do. 
But why create the problem of trying to find a new guitarist when, on the strength of tonight's show, the Wild Hearts clearly don't need one? Tonight was a full-on Wild Hearts set, opening with greetings from Shitsville and crashing straight into Caffeine Bomb and Sucker Punch. There follows one of the best gigs ever. Ignore the fact that the tiny audience is too gobsmacked to move, the sound is great and somehow the venue is perfect. Halfway through, main man Ginger introduces a new number. I've not even heard this before, he says, and after fucking the thing up, declares, sack the guitarist. Without even a hint of irony, they kick into an awesome ear-splitting tune called Sin in Sin, which proves what we all know, that there's a huge undiscovered mass of material whizzing around Ginger's brain waiting to get out. They finish with a flourish and they're gone. The audience clearly shocked, blown away and deaf. Nobody can really believe it. They walked into the venue totally free to see a band they'd never heard of and got a full-on Wild Hearts set. If you're gutted because you weren't there, you should be. They were awesome. The last review this week is for Neurosis, Seven Year Bitch and Grotus live at Moe's Seattle on Saturday, July 22nd. Reviewed by Morat, this one gets electrocution out of five, five out of five. Grotus look and occasionally sound like something out of one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Indeed, frontman Lars Fox cavorts about the stage in a hospital gown looking deranged and sporadically battering the crap out of drums. This is par for the course for one of San Francisco's finest bands who tonight showcase a whole bunch of new material from their forthcoming major label debut LP. Of course they throw in the odd oldie, like Brown with that immense pummeling bassline. The new stuff is very much in that vein, but Grotus are a visual feast too. The screen images um, behind them, all synced with the music, grow more confrontational each time you see them. Whether commercial success awaits is another matter. Seven Year Bitch are far less crap than expected, but they still play generic Riot Girl music while not quite managing to incite a riot. Cool, if you like that sort of thing. Neurosis, on the other hand, are a full body and mind fuck. Imagine the offspring of the Manson family playing in the band. Guitarist Scott Kelly even looks like a young Charlie. They sound like a car crash of Buzz Oven, Godflesh and crust punk legends Amoebics. And the visual experience is like Hawkwind in your worst nightmares. Unless Hawkwind are your worst nightmare. With screen loot tapes of senators committing suicide, flames, skulls and chaos, Neurosis are not a band for the weak need. The two hour set is unrelenting and leaves you feeling both beaten and elated. It's enough to make you neurotic. We now come to this week's cover stars, White Zombie, US Monsters Invade Brit Festivals. Two-Fisted Tales, Donington on the Saturday, Reading on the Sunday, yeah, it's White Zombie's two-fisted British blaster-rama. As America's highest band invade the UK, Jason Arnop hits Florida to check out the zombie monster mosh. There's a kid sitting in Angel's Diner with Say You Love Satan written on the back of his t-shirt in enormous pink letters. The old timers moan about this nasty slogan while munching their waffles and syrup. The kid is indeed a cult member. He belongs to the sect of White Zombie. He has returned from the local amphitheatre and he and his mates are now psyched by the power of zombie metal. This year, everything seems more real, says frontman Rob Zombie of his band's richly deserved success. Last year, I think some people saw us as a one-song band that no one would ever hear from again. But now there's another record out, and kids in last year's shirts are coming back to buy this year's. There are no less than 10 zombie shirt designs, and Orlando's Floridan metalers want every one of them. Florida is a place of extremes. 
On one hand, you've got the story in today's paper about a family of five wiped out in their own house by their own decorator. Murdered by your painter, gasps a horrified bystander. On the other, bloodless hand, smiley faced tourists flock to Disney World. Rob Zombie may rarely be smiley faced, but this afternoon he hires a car and hits this place with his girlfriend, also managing a stroll around Universal Studios. White Zombie's travelling freak show adds gloriously to the sense of imbalance. The closest I'll get to doing Kiss in 76, according to Guitar Tech, is a thrilling mass of tacky red neon, explosions, and crucified clowns mainly in honour of excerpts from their brilliant fifth album Astro Creek 2000 Songs of Love Destruction and other synthetic delusions of the electric head. So is that, kid, in the diner, stupid or what? Are White Zombie just another Yankee phenomenon that we're uh, gonna hate? Are they fuck? White Zombie, completed by bassist Sean Uzel, Jay Guitar and Johnny Tempest the drums, have captured the American youth's imagination, partly because Rob Zombie still mirrors them entirely. He still represents the loner kid who'd rather watch horror and play Nintendo at home than socialise or kick a ball around. This kid is hardly exclusive to America. The zombie look great and are musically about muscular, pumping riffage chained to Rob's boundlessly energetic yelling. Astro Creep is an infectious, supercharged steamroller free of fillers or dull moments. It's one of the year's truly exciting albums alongside those by The Wild Hearts Therapy and Fear Factory. White Zombie are also fun. Any lover of hard modern music should cock an ear. Yet Rob Zombie was once a little geek back home in Massachusetts. Eyes firmly glued to his TV, whoever would have expected him to become one of America's coolest metal motherfuckers. The latest NASA shuttle returned to Orlando today. Did Rob ever yearn to be an astronaut? No, he surprisingly answers. It never seemed very exciting. Everyone else wanted to do that or be a fireman. And it seemed like you'd take a lot of school and then never get up into space anyway. I always knew I wanted to make movies or be in a band or draw comics. My attention strays easily. If I'm not interested in something, it can't hold me for one second. I hated school and sat brain dead through the whole process. Zombie describes Massachusetts as one of those really typical dead American states. Any business was long gone and there was nothing to do. When McDonald's opened, it was a big deal. Like, wow, a place to go. It's telling that the lack of local parks forced Zombie and his few friends to play in churchyards and cemeteries. We thought nothing of it. There was a million other things, so it seemed natural to play in them. In the absence of any parentally enforced religion, I went to church once, thought it was boring, and that was it. Television became Rob's god. It's really weird, he considers. I must have started watching TV at such an early age that I can't ever remember not watching it. My ass just automatically flopped in front of the TV. Without that, I wouldn't have known there was anything else going on in the world. My mum and dad never really cared what I watched, he admits. They didn't see it as particularly harmful. I'm not sure if it was or not. Other kids were only allowed to watch half an hour of TV per day, whereas I could easily watch eight. Art was another zombie obsession. At the age of 18, he left his hometown for art college in New York. I always drew, he shrugs. Every little kid draws, but most eventually quit. I wanted to move to New York anyway. I didn't care why. I only knew about it through TV, but it seemed like the centre of everything. Musically, his unholy trinity were the OTT sequin rock and roll showman Elton John, gore-spattered shock rocker Alice Cooper, and hard rock's most infamously theatrical fire monsters, Kiss. Those three ridiculous things just happened to be the first three things I stumbled on, and they attracted the way I looked at everything else. He soon quit college. I hated every second of it. It was babysitting for rich kids who were only there because their parents couldn't figure out what to do with them. I got bored so fast. Friends were always a foreign concept to Zombie Junior. I never got along with anybody. 
Still don't. It's hard to explain. Other kids love things that I didn't give a shit about. But everything I was into they thought was stupid. So I thought, fuck it. I'll just do my own thing. White Zombie became that thing. It crept from the pit in 1985 after Rob met Sean at a CBGB's hardcore matinee. This is where Sean, pronounced Shauna, has to fill gaps because Rob is hopelessly vague and short of wacky anecdotes. I don't remember exactly when the band formed, he shrugs. It wasn't a big event. I didn't write on my calendar. Oh boy, the band started today. Shauna. Rob called me a couple of days after CBGB's. We were both into Black Flag and he was more into the Misfits and I was more into the Cramps. He also liked old shit like Sabbath and the Doors, so we melded all that stuff together. Countless members passed through, as Rob points out. We needed people willing to work for no rewards whatsoever. We kind of used people, knowing they'd never commit, recalls Shauna. Jay was one of the first people who said, yeah, I'll quit my job, go on tour and eat dirt. An old corrosion of conformity van soon became the zombie mobile, Shauna. Someone busted one of its windows in Brooklyn, so we put this board across it and drove around like the Beverly Hillbillies. We made anything from $30 to $100 per show. I pretty much did the shit work back then, she laughs. Rob did all the design work, but I did all the tour booking and stuff. Now we've got professional people handling that so I can just kick back and play bass. Their first releases were ultra-limited singles. Shauna. It cost $300 to press $300, so we scraped together the money. I worked in a Xerox factory and stole stuff when the boss wasn't looking. After these came the Psycho Head Blowout EP, then a sign-in to Caroline Records which yielded the Soul Crusher and Make Them Die Slowly LPs. White Zombie then leapt to Geffen and released the Sex Assisto Devil Music Volume 1 in 92. It proved to be a rousing blueprint for future glory, boasting the US sleeper hit Thunderkiss 65 and boosted by constant roadwork. So here we are in 95 with Astro Creep doing even better. The album has sold over a million copies in the US alone. Its unstoppable hit single More Human Than Human plays every half hour on most US radio stations. But will White Zombie stardom make it hard to stay special? Probably admits Rob, I think it's easier to get somewhere than keep it there. Everyone's dying for your next thing to be a disaster. Shauna is more positive. Now that we have some success and more money, it means we're able to do everything we always aspire to. I don't think that makes us any less credible. In the old days, if we wanted smoke, we'd throw a stink bomb. We'd steal construction lights and put them behind us on stage. Anything to catch people's attention. It was real low budget and campy, but we always had a larger than life kind of thing. The bassist has deliberately escaped the rock chick tag. Mention the term sex symbol and she laughs one of her volcanic nervous laughs. I'm still not sure whether people have figured out I'm a girl or not. I get completely excluded from all the females in rock crap and I'm glad. It's funny because I spent most of my life just sliding by as a guy. I thought we kind of got accepted for that reason because not many people would take a girl very seriously as a musician. People thought I was a guy and I used it to my advantage. They saw I could play before they went, oh it's a girl. Rob's head fucking lyrics provide the band with their own cartoon world of space mutants, Hellfire and the Living Dead. But would he be offended if people thought his lyrics were purely babbling? Not really. Some would think a lot of the time and thought went into them. Others might think it's nonsense that someone wrote off the top of their heads, which is pretty naive. I couldn't write obvious stuff where every line makes perfect sense. Most rock songs have messages for two-year-olds. I could make everything simpler and easier to market, but where's the fun in that? Does your work amuse you? Well, it doesn't make me laugh like a funny joke, but it has to have some kind of sarcasm or humour in it. Or it's laughable. Some bands have big concepts that are so dead serious and that makes me laugh. Give me a fucking break. 
Real solution number nine crops up in conversation. The lines, come on, the motherfucker's on fire. He cut through the bone, he cut through the wire, especially lingering the head. It's somewhat based on some of that gelled cult leader Charles Manson nonsense, reveals Rob. I've only seen Manson through the media, and he's certainly funny and makes for a good interview. People always ask whether it's a good or bad thing, but it's neither, it's just interesting. What about those lines? There was a news thing one night. Someone was interviewing a couple of the Manson girls 20 years later, and they were talking about going into the Tate house. I was just paying off some of the words they were saying about cutting the phone lines and stuff. And the electric head, a drug thing? Not for me, but maybe some people might see it that way. Most people would swear you write lyrics on acid. Yeah, I don't know why. I already have all these things in my head, so I don't need to bring them out. If I took acid, I'd probably just sit in the corner and stare at the walls. The word love appears in the album title, but Rob's lyrics seem more about trashy sex. There's not a lot of sentimentality here. No, I guess I'm not a sentimental kind of guy. People might read sexism into the lyrics, but there's none. It's not like the 80s metal where bunches of puffy head guys sang about how badass they were. It's not White Snake. White Snake, they most certainly ain't. But White Zombie nevertheless have separate dressing rooms now. This has nothing to do with any internal breakdown. Rob got his own room as soon as there was space, explained Sean. He's sort of to himself anyway. But it also got kind of awkward for me to get dressed and undressed without having to crawl into a bathroom. Rob Zombie ain't the most comfortable of rock stars despite his formidable stage presence. I just like creating stuff, he shrugs. I like making a record, a video, a live show and all the work involved. Watching one little riff turn into a huge production in front of all these people. It's nice to have money so you don't starve, but I don't really understand why anybody would want to be famous. What's so great about everyone knowing who you are? Some bands will jump through hoops for that. White Zombie have given conformity the finger. At a time when heavy music is commercially declining in the US, they've stuck to their guns. Rob, I don't think White Zombie is hip or unhip, it just is. I never felt we were part of a movement and in the long run, that's a good thing. Will these creeps still be stalking in 2000 AD? Probably not, he shrugs. I don't want to be the Rolling Stones. It's 1995. You can't tweet about it. You can't post on Facebook about it. You can't make a Reddit thread. What you can do though, is you can write it to communication and tell them how you feel. So the letter of the week this week begins. I, like many other rock fans of today, am under 18 and have been reluctantly forced to give up the chance of seeing many gigs due to the fact that the majority take place in an over 18s venue. Now, before you 18 and overs think, oh no, not another whining letter, let me put my point into some kind of context. I've been listening to rock since I was seven and have been to as many gigs as the age restriction laws have allowed me. This year, my mate and I forked out 75 quid for two Donington ticket and transport packages and will no doubt spend another 40 quid each on t-shirts and programs once we get there. So come last Sunday night, when I was watching Headbangers Ball, I was well chuffed to find out there would be an after show party practically next door to me at Birmingham XL's club where Metallica, Skid Row, Slayer, White Zombie and so on are all set to make an appearance. Even though it's a nightclub, I was sure they'd let everyone in as it was a special occasion. But when I phoned XL's, they stated that no matter what the circumstances were, no under 18s would be allowed in. Even though I'm well knocked, I don't particularly blame the venue nor the bands involved. Yet the organisers have surely got to realise thousands of under 18s are going to be at Donington. Spending fortunes on merchandise and so on. But once again, we're all going to be denied the opportunity to meet our favourite bands. 
When is everyone concerned going to realise under 18 spend as much money as everyone else, even though we've got less of it, following the music we love? So next time Vanessa Warwick says all Headbangers Ball viewers are invited to a special party, just remember who's really invited. Whoever is responsible for this, thanked for nothing. Pissed off, Solihull. Well said. Now dry your eyes with this lovely Karen cap. Editor. I'm not usually the kind of guy that writes into magazines, but there is one thing that is really pissing me off. Censorship in Kerrang. Okay, maybe I can understand missing out the odd fucking letter on the cover so as not to offend all the old dearies doddering around WH Smith. But inside, we all know what the words are. The majority of us use them, so why blank them out with asterisks? If guitar magazines can print interviews with the likes of the Wild Hearts without censorship, why not the mighty Kerrang? If that's what they've said, why not print it? Leighton Brown, Perthshire. In Kerrang issue 557, I noticed an advert asking for people to join the Bon Jovi covers band. What? So there's somebody on this planet who thinks he's good enough to even try to do what Bon Jovi have done. No way, pal. All of Bon Jovi's songs are too good for Pratt's to copy. You have a bad case of disrespect. As Phil and Selma would say, you can't be something you're not. Our Sambora, Nottingham. Gagging for a shagging. Please print a picture of the most shag-worthy bass player in the world, Jennifer Finch from L7. Fwoar. I'd cover her in hot custard and noodles any day. The horny hag. Fucking hell. Danny, London. I've been reading about the antics of W. Axel Rose. As he is a rock singer, he originally named himself after an Axel, a piece of rather heavy metal. However, in view of his recent actions, I feel he should name himself after another piece of heavy metal, the Anchor. Then his name will be W. Anchor Rose, Weasel, Bedfordshire. Robbie's left take that. So fucking what? I was having a great laugh at what seemed to be their long overdue decline, until I saw their fans acting as though he had died. Their fans were so upset, poor loves, in Germany, that a helpline has been set up for them. Fucking typical. We never got anything after Kurt's death. What about all the grieving fans who want to literally follow in Kurt's footsteps? They get nothing. Because he wasn't part of the pop mainstream. So he's not important enough, despite the fact that Kurt and Nirvana have just as many fans, if not more. What's the difference between Robbie leaving and Kurt's death? Take that fans, still get to hear, see and get the simple feeling that Robbie exists in a mortal form. That's what. Kurt Cobain, rest in peace. Sue Driver, Lincolnshire. Ill communication. Next we have a piece entitled Smells Like Teen Spirit. Silverchair, teenage Aussie grunge sensations. They're Australia's biggest export since neighbours. Meet teenage grungesters Silverchair, the band that made Kerrang Cub, Jason Arnock look positively old. The press always focus on our age shrugs, Silverchair bassist Chris Jonu, referring to the trio all being 15 years old, but we like to think of ourselves as a rock band who just happen to be young blokes. Maybe Silverchair do, but interviewing a 15-year-old grungester is still weird. There are awkward silences, and you somehow feel the need to tone down the journalistic attack. Ask young Chris, for example, if he reckons Silverchair are largely getting attention because of their novelty age factor, and you know you'll only end up feeling like a right cunt afterwards. Neither do you really feel like putting it to this floppy fringe mini-muse that Silverchair are more than inspired by Nirvana. Guitarist vocalist Daniel Johns even resembles a young Cobain. Luckily, Chris brings up the subject voluntarily. 
In Australia, we always get compared to Nirvana, but our album doesn't sound anything like them, he insists, and you believe that he believes it. Then he slightly reconsiders. Just a couple of the slow songs, maybe. None of us listened to Nirvana. To tell you the truth, we sort of got into Bleach, and that was about it. Then we started listening to a bit of Pearl Jam and went straight into Helmet and Soundgarden. Silverchair's Frog Stomp debut will finally emerge here on September the 11th, but it's been out in their native Australia for a while. The band completed by drummer Ben Gillies, drums, formed over three years ago as Innocent Criminals. Chris now admits the name was a bit shocking. The criminals delighted in annoying the neighbours in Ben's garage in Newcastle, a small industrial town two hours out of Sydney. They started out playing covers of stuff their dads were into, Led Zeppelin, Deep Purple and Kiss. After doing the occasional gig for $10 a night, we thought that was unreal. Silverchair sent a demo into a National Talent Quest contest. The prize was to not only record a song in a top studio, but record a top promo video to accompany it. Silverchair came out on top over the other 799 contestants and chose to record their track tomorrow. The biggest Aussie rock radio station, Triple J, latched onto it and someone from Sony Music saw the video. Snapped up by Sony, Silverchair's Tomorrow's single zoomed straight to the national number one. That's kind of set a precedent now though, notes Chris. Everyone's going to expect our next singles to go to number one. It's a bit worrying. The trio subsequently rocked out with Hull, Ministry and Offspring on the Lollapalooza-style Big Day Out festivals in Oz and New Zealand. All of a sudden, the trio found themselves transported from Ben's garage to playing for thousands and experiencing backstage chaos. At some point in the trek, they met Hull's Courtney Love, sort of. She just looked at us and didn't say anything, the bassist frowns. She walked off, then came back later and had another look at us and walked off again. Courtney's a bit of a wild turkey. She's crazy. Frog Stomp may carry a Beavis and Butthead title, but Daniel Johns' earnest lyrics do at least aspire to be something more than infantile. Suicidal Dream concerns Australia's high percentage of teenage suicide. Shade tackles child abuse. Daniel watches documentaries on this Australian channel called SBS all the time and writes songs about them, says Chris. Either that, or he'll have a stupid dream or something. Luckily, Silverchair's parents have proven their son's grunge cake antics. The lads are, after all, still at school. They've always been behind us in every single way, nods Chris. My dad used to play in a band a while ago, and Ben's dad used to play a bit of guitar. Year 10 at school is going to be tough, he admits. You go away for a period of time, then come back and you're about two weeks behind. We'll have a tutor coming in to help us catch up. It sucks. Silverchair aimed to make year 12, but what if they become a worldwide success and have to really tour? Well, then that's the end of that idea, he smiles. Exams will be right out of the window. Silverchair still have an air of innocence. Chris sees drinking and dope smoking is stupid. Interestingly, the band doesn't get talked about at school, almost as an unspoken law. Ask Chris what he thought of Kurt Cobain's death, and the reply is both predictable and touching. It just went straight over my head. I wasn't into him, but I thought, wow, what an idiot. What did he kill himself for? He could write songs, and he had such a future. In the first for this podcast, and for the uh, me going through and reading out all of these magazines, there are no posters in this week's Kerrang! because they were all on my bedroom wall. So there were four posters, Soundgarden, Blind Melon, Sepultura and Green Day. I know for a fact that Sepultura picture of Max Cavalera and the one of Billy Joe from Green Day were definitely, definitely on my teenage bedroom wall. Anyway, let's move on to singles. The singles this week are reviewed by Malcolm Dome. The first single reviewed is Charity by Skunk and Nancy and this gets 3Ks. Skin is the unquestioned star of this little ditty. 
Her richly soulful and powerful voice simply cuts through in a manner so redolent of the late great Janis Joplin. It's just a shame that both the song, a slow burner and the band don't quite do Skin's voice justice, otherwise we'd be talking about a classic. The next single is Skydiver by Stumm. This gets 1k. The term Stumm actually means silence in an ancient Eastern European dialect. Shame this Irish foursome don't follow the advice of their name. Vacuous alternative rock, short on ideas and bereft of individuality. Go away. The next single is for Faceless by Conspiracy of Silence. This gets 1k. This five piece from Antwerp would have sounded dated and faceless 10 years ago, but in 95 they're about as a contemporary as an eight track cartridge. Dull, tired, stale thrash metal that's about as extreme as a feather duster. Further info from Hans de Weignart, Shiva Records, Bosnpleinstraat, 63128, Baal, Belgium. State of Mind with their single Red Face, this gets 1k. Malcolm Dome is not happy this week. Everyone's getting 1k. Anyway, the review. State of mind are mind-numbing Londoners who simply don't have anything to offer with their lame rock, except the chance to decapitate your neighbour with a CD frisbee. Chopper, with their single Self-Preservation Society, this gets 3k's. A return to the oi days. Chopper take a size 11 boot firmly to the midriff, but do it with a sense of black humour. Worth investigating at. Crackle, P.O. Box, HB49, Leeds, LS6, 4XL. The single of the week this week is Hey Man, Nice Shot by Filter. Oh, uh, sorry, this gets 4Ks. This stands out like a stick of dynamite in a box of damp matches. Filter take their cue from Nine Inch Nails, but they have a bravura and personality all of their own, combining industrial spit with melodic polish. Another week and another piece on Sebastian Bach from Skid Row. Kerrang really, really, really likes this guy. He is all over Kerrang. The Kerrang interview. Lick my nuts. That's Sebastian Bach's blunt message to anyone who tries to fuck with Skid Row. In a no-holds-barred interview, Seb tells Sylvie Simmons how he survived Skid Row's meteoric rise to fame. The money, the drugs, the groupies, the lawsuit, and those rucks with the rest of the band. Sebastian Bach needs no introduction, but what the fuck, you're gonna get one. The man who has to call Kerrang to find out what gigs he's playing was born 27 years ago on the same day as Marlon Brando. He was named by his old hippie dad after old hippie singer John Sebastian, scored in the same private gaff in Canada as his Royal Highness Prince Andrew, and from an early age he entertained his mates with his intricate knowledge of Kiss and his uncanny impressions of Judas Priest screamer Rob Halford. At 15, he left home and school to sing in some naff bands with some seriously naff hairdos. He was playing at a rock photographer's wedding in California with Zach Wilde and Kevin DeBrow, rug-wearing frontman of ancient LA Great Quiet Riot, when Dave Snake Sabo, Rachel Bolan, Rob Afuso and Scotty Hill found him. They sent him a demo tape with You've Gone Wild and 18 and Life on it. He thought, fuck, god damn it, they're good. I've got to go sing with these guys. And he has done for nine years. After five minutes playing the New Jersey bar circuit, Skid Row were superstars. Within a year of forming, they toured the States with Bon Jovi and Aerosmith, the UK with Motley Crue, headlined Japan, got arrested in three cities and almost caused a riot in London when a thousand fans wanted into the marquee and tried to overturn their bus. Their debut album sold four million copies. 
What was Skid Row like in the early days? When I first joined the band there was no record deal, no manager, we basically went into Rachel's garage and started writing what became the first record. I was very young and having fun, 18 when I joined and 19 when we recorded. Once we started playing clubs in the New York area we started getting these huge crowds and got signed up right away. Early on John Bon Jovi, who went to school with Snake, took the band under his wing. I'm not allowed to talk about that because Bon Jovi made me sign a legal document saying that we couldn't talk about each other in the press. I will someday, but not now. The good times, it was a decade ago, I can't remember. Your first major tour was with Bon Jovi. What was it like going from shitholes to stadiums in one leap? Before we started playing arenas, every time I'd go to a show, I'd just break out in a sweat because I wanted to be on the stage and not in the crowd. It got to the point where I was jealous of every band that I saw because I really wanted to hear my voice for a gigantic PA in a humongous room. When we finally got there, it was almost anticlimactic because I was concentrated so hard on singing. I just shut my eyes and didn't open them until the end of the set. What do you remember about making that first album? I can remember after the first album was done and finished and went on to sell 4 million copies worldwide, somebody that was working very close to us thought it was just absolute shit and tried to go in and add his own talent over the top of it. I was at home when I got a call saying that the singing sucked. I'm talking about exactly what you hear on that CD and I had to go back and redo it all and I said you can lick my nuts I'm staying right here. The comment I got back from this individual was well I hope you can jam a gold record up my ass. We'll make room for quadruple platinum. Up against the wall and spread those cheeks buddy. That much success that quick can really fuck with some people. How about you? I'm still trying to come down from it. When you're blasted off into the stratosphere at the age of 19 and given a million bucks in your pocket. I'm 27 now. Maybe by the age of 30 I will have learned to come to terms with all that. I never planned on any of that. When I was a little kid I said I always wanted to be an astronaut or a firefighter. So it was unbelievable to all of a sudden when I take a piss in my apartment, have to get on my hands and knees and crawl under the window because there were girls up in a tree looking in my house. All I ever wanted to do was sing, but all the stuff that comes with it is pretty weird. It can make you not want to sing anymore. To be honest with you, all this baggage that comes along with it. You also subscribe for a while to the Motley Crue philosophy of more money meaning bigger and better drugs. You get in a band because you want attention. Well, be careful what you wish for because it can come true. I think when you do hard drugs you're looking for solitude. I don't do it anymore, I think they suck. But I think the reason why a lot of musicians do them is you're at peace on some level and truly in a world of your own. Which is what you need sometimes when you're in a band and touring the planet. At one point the band stuck a 24 hour security guard on you to keep you out of trouble. When we first made it I didn't understand the whole glass punch bowl effect where you couldn't leave the hotel because there were 400 people outside and you would get your face ripped off or whatever. And I like to go out all the time, go to record stores and have fun. So there were tense moments, especially with 14 bottles of Jack Daniels in you. That can fuck your head up, stuck in a hotel room for a year on end. You once told me you were more inspired by anger than love. That must have been on the Slaves of the Grind tour. I had my nose in the dirt at that point. You go through different periods in your life but that album was a period where when we came off the road we learned a lot of things about the business that would have definitely broken up other bands. I hate going into that, we felt stabbed in the back at that period so we stabbed back. Earlier there was the infamous incident where you leapt into the audience and beat up someone you thought chucked a bottle at you. You've got to understand where I came from, a lot of the bands that came out now come from college. I quit school when I was 15 to play in clubs, I did it the hard way. I played in bars in Quebec, four sets a night doing cover tunes. 
I remember playing in Canada up north. I had makeup on and hair up to the roof. There were eight people in the audience and suddenly I saw a chair sailing right in my head. There were fights at the time, busted bowls and barroom brawls. My dream then was to just release a record before I die. Playing arenas, that bottle incident, I wasn't used to. Well, it's a different thing now, you are a role model. I was too young to understand all that. I just acted the same as when I was playing the bar in Quebec. Because I have tunnel vision when I'm on stage. The crowd is great, but I've got a job to do up there. I focus right in on what I'm doing. And when something like that happens, it's hard to switch into the role model gear. What's the best thing Skid Row have ever done? My personal favourite is Beat Yourself Blind from the new album Subhuman Race. But I would never put anything out I didn't like. That's why it takes us so long to release records. My highlight is having a catalogue of work and not just one song that people like. So if I get hit by a truck tomorrow, I'll still have four CDs on the record store shelf. What about the low light? Has there ever been a time when you've wanted to pack it in? Absolutely. Just dealing with the legal side. Just dealing with the fact that people are cunts in this business. The band has also lived through some tough internal problems. There were people who thought the last album would not get made. There was absolutely no problem making the last album. The problem is getting into the same room to make the album. It's a tough question. I don't want to answer that. It's like really obvious when you're around for nine years with the same five guys that there's going to be little insignificant squabbles. I fight with my dad more than I fight with my band. In fact, my band has been together longer than my parents were. So sitting in my seat answering that question, it's ridiculous because it's lasted longer than anything I've ever had in my life. And you guys only wrote 30,000 fucking articles about it. Jesus Christ. We wouldn't have had anything to write about if various members of the band hadn't called up and said, I'm pissed off. What about you um, piss them off? Have you got two hours? Like I said, any relationship has stupid fights. We're playing Donington in a week. If we get in a fight, you'll see it. I'll make uh, for a better show. Busted guitars, blood. What's the state of Skid Row right now? We're getting along better than ever. We're playing better shows. It's a good album that sold over 1.2 million copies worldwide and we're already writing songs for the next one. So we can get it together real quick. I can tell you one title, Blood Money. Wonder what that's about? Once the touring's done in February, which will be a year, we're going straight back into the studio. I think as far as time off goes, everyone gets their allotment in life and we've used ours up. Can you put your finger on why you're getting along better? I think because we let uh, each other be themselves instead of trying to change each other. It's taken me a while to learn that. Is there still a place for Skid Row in the mid-90s? If 1.2 million people buy your records, it's definitely enough of a place. There's millions of bands that would chop off their left nut to sell that many. As far as sales go, when you're played on MTV every 10 minutes, you sell records, and when you're not, you don't. Are you still a total rock fan? How couldn't I be? If I wasn't, I'd be dead. It keeps me sane. Basically, we're heavy metal, aren't we? We made a record, it's so heavy, you couldn't get off the turntable. Albums. And the album of the week this week is An Out Come The Wolves by Rancid. Reviewed by Phil Alexander, this gets 5Ks. If you met Californian crusty punks Rancid stalking the streets at night, you'd probably give them 10p for a cup of tea, or at least for their next bag of glue. Rancid, you see, are the kind of punk rock band you don't take home to mother. They eat offspring for breakfast, live in a squat, and they're about to sell millions of records in America. Why, you ask, are they set to become the next US punk darlings? Spin this 19-track affair and the answer is pretty obvious. Underneath those Mohicans, bondage pants and battered leathers, Rancid possessed a songwriting sus that will have you yodeling in your bathtub, pogoing through your soap suds 
and gobbing in your bathroom mirror. Sure, cynics will point out the ranted have nicked everything they know from long gone Brit punk heroes like The Clash and the whole 80s oi street punk movement, but who really cares about all that old shit? When a record sounds as good as an outcome the wolves, do you really want to dig out the first three Clash albums and play Spot the Riff? Nah. Open and Maxwell Murder is a tale of villainy and deceit. The fact that the band urge you to dial 999 if you really want the truth is chuckle worthy. When you bear in mind that the equivalent Yankland emergency number is 911, the tune itself though is a power punk gem that careers into off-kilter stump of 11th hour. Next up, Rancid dive into Reggaesville with a full-on ska punk bop of Roots Radical. It's a classic track, harking back to Rancid's previous band, Operation Ivy, and their brew of madness-styled malarkey mixed with punkoid trash. The fact that Rancid know how to mix it up means that they avoid the boredom factor that populates some of the albums being spewed up by the current wave of so-called US punks. That ain't to say that they don't play it straight when it matters. Tracks like the Clash-tastic Ruby Soho, the oilicious avenues and alleyways, and the persecution pogo of disorder and disarray boast more direct hooks than a 50-man fishing junket. The twists and turns of Junkie Man, the song from which the title of this LP is taken, still allow for maximum impact in the old chorus stakes. The same is true of the jerky Time Bomb, delivered with the twin chant ability of guitar players come frontmen Tim Armstrong and Lars Fredrickson. Overall, there ain't a duff moment on this pogo-tastic patter, and Out Come the Wolves is about having a laugh, having a say, and probably having a little too much to drink. On that note, I'm off down the local to play it all over again. The next review is for DFL with their album Proud To Be DFL. Reviewed by Paul Brannigan, this one gets 3Ks. Having established itself in the Premier League of Punk, the Epitaph label has been dipping into the transfer market and snapping up some hot new prospects. DFL, dead fucking last, a close season signing from the Beastie Boys ultra cool Grand Royal label, might find it difficult living with the big boys. DFL's connection with the Beasties is a strong one. Adam Horowitz, Ad Rock, who twiddles the knobs here, used to play in the band. It should come as no surprise then that DFL specialise in the raw minor threat style hardcore that the Beasties do so well. But as that Burke from TV's catchphrase would say, DFL are good, but not quite right. Among the 20 songs on offer here, proud to be DFL has some memorable moments. The bump wine of Sourpuss, the groovy slam of Good Cop, Bad Cop, and the title track's Defiant Yob Raw, for example. But most tunes are energetic, sound-alike, free-called fuzzballs, with little to lift them above the mediocre. You can see bands just like this every night in Washington DC or New York, and one suspects that without the Beasties connection, DFL would simply be called local heroes. Beard up in a tiny club, DFL would give you the best night of your life. On record, they're harmless fun, and not much more. The reviews are quite um, thin on the ground this week, so the last review this week is for Creator with their album Cause for Conflict. Reviewed by Malcolm Dome, this gets 3Ks. 10 years ago, you could have made a good case for claiming that Creator were Europe's leading thrashers. These days, if you can make a good case, chances are you're more likely to shove Creator in it, fasten it down firmly and throw it into the nearest river, hoping never to hear from the Germans again. Creator just ain't hit to the plot anymore on the extreme edge of metal. The bus left ages ago. While Millie, Petroza and his lads were having a nice cup of tea at the depot, true, but they have tried to update their sound by taking on board an industrial edge in recent years, but this was always too little, too late. 
Besides, fans of the band could never quite get used to this change in direction. Now they've accepted the truth of the matter, only die-hard fans of Creator care about them and they simply want retreads of the same familiar ground. Cause for Conflict offers up 12 tracks, any one of which could have fitted easily into any of the early Creator releases. This is retro thrash that really won't appeal to those wrapped up in death or black metal. Of its type, there's no doubt, Cause is respectable and listenable especially on Catholic Despot, Bomb Threat and Hate Inside Your Head but it's difficult to understand exactly who will buy this record. Sure there will be a degree of competence throughout that one would expect from a band who've been around the block as many times as this lot have, but perspiration is never a decent substitute for inspiration, and the latter is in short supply here. Right now, does the world need a decent if uninspired thrash album that could have been made in 1985? Answers on a postcard to Millie Petroza Care of Gun Records. The last piece in this week's Kerrang! is In Bed with Machine Head. Jason Arnott meets Machine Head Rob Flynn for saucy tales of handcuffs, pigs and the intriguingly titled The Brown Video. When did you first become aware of the birds and the bees? When I was about 4 or 5, my mum actually showed me a book with drawings of what sex was. She wanted me to know that it was healthy and good. Then I was sitting in the bathtub one day with a fucking hard on and I started playing with myself and I was like wow this feels good. There were far more girls than guys on my street, so I soon got into the show me yours and I'll show you mine type games. I really started enjoying girls. I can remember discovering the joys of masturbation in our basement with a girl called Lisa. When did you lose your virginity and what was it like? I was 16. We were both nervous so we drank some wine first. Surprisingly, I lasted a good 20 minutes and afterwards I was fucking thrilled beyond belief. I had blue balls for a week but I decided we'd have to do this thing more often. Do you practice safe sex? I'd be the first to admit that I'm not the best example to follow. When I was younger I wore a rubber about maybe 4 or 5 times. I just didn't like the feel of them. This was 10 years ago so AIDS wasn't in the media back then. We had a friend who used heroin then got AIDS through the needles and died. He was totally heterosexual so I think that made us go whoa. Do you get off on porn? Yeah we got porno mags and videos on the bus. It's one of life's many joys. I can watch a good porno and laugh hysterically sometimes. We like super crazy super weird stuff too. Like this film with an old man fucking a pig. It doesn't get us aroused but you still watch it. In that film the old man's got a female assistant who sucks him off but his face shows absolute boredom. Then he goes to the pig again and it's like the greatest thing ever. Then there's this video I got from Tom Araya from Stay Out. It's called the Brown video and it made even me fucking gag. Are you a whips and chains kind of guy? I've done the wrists on the bedpost stuff, but I just prefer to be in charge myself. I never got into the whips and shit, although I know people who love it. There are plenty of other things that turn me on. Like what? Uh, long, super slow blowjobs. Just normal shit. Are you a considerate bed partner? It just depends on how tired I get, but I'd say I'm a very considerate bed partner. Sex ain't just for me to get my nut off. It makes me feel good to please a woman at the end of the day. Do you know where a woman's G-spot is? Oh yeah, I was taught where it is, but I'm not going to give out none of my secrets. Just ask the woman where to go. She'll tell you. Don't you think for a second that she won't. Chart Attack and the number one album this week is Foo Fighters by Foo Fighters. Number one in the indie LPs is Smashed by Offspring. And the number one single this week is Girl From Mars by Ash. The reader's chart this week comes from Dan McGuire from Surrey. His chart begins 1. Sex type things, Stone Temple Pilots, 2. Caffeine, Faith No More, 3. It Ain't Like That, Alice in Chains, 
four Inglorious the Wild Hearts, five Like Suicide Soundgarden, six Wood Allison Chains, seven Army Ant Stone Temple Pilots, eight I Don't Know Anything Mad Season, nine The Gentle Art of Making Enemies Faith No More, and ten Auto Surgery by Therapy. Star tracks this week come from Skinned Mike Gray. His chart begins one Blood Sugar Sex Magic Red Hot Chili Peppers, two Texas Blood Stevie Ray Vaughan, three I Alone Live, four Temple of the Dog Temple of the Dog, and five Purple by Stone Temple Pilots. Next week in Kerrang Back Issues, world exclusive Metallica, fuck the studio Donington, here we come. Soundgarden reading the riot act in the Kerrang interview. No effects inside their punk rock cafe. ACDC new LP exclusive. Survive the great outdoors, roughing it with Kerrang at Reading and Donington, plus Moist, Poor, Apes, Pigs and Spacemen, Smashing Pumpkins, Therapy and Slayer. If you would like to leave a review for this podcast, you can do so at Apple Music or Spotify. Please do leave us a review and leave us the best review you think we deserve. <laughs> if that's five five Ks, please leave us five Ks. That would be lovely. Um, we'll be back next Wednesday as usual. Talk to you all then. Have a good week. Bye for now.